And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that may be a discussion you want to get in on. We've had guests on the show who've come on to ask travel questions. And we also have a lot of people in the travel industry who listen to this show and sometimes appear as guests. So if that is you, you can email me at travelshow at fromermedia.com. That's F-R-O-M-M-E-R media.com. Now, that's also the name you're going to want to use, Fromers. If you're a traveler and you want to visit us online, we have a website that we pour our hearts and souls into. We cover all of the breaking travel news. We have lots of really fun and interesting pieces on everything that's happening, not just in travel, but in cuisine and culture and history. We cover it all. So we hope you'll visit us at Fromers.com. And before I go, uh, I want to discuss the fact that you can also follow us on social media. Uh, Look for the word Fromers on Instagram, on Pinterest, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Now, for people who have been listening to this show regularly, you know that we're doing things a little differently. Instead of popping around from guest to guest, we have just one guest on per segment. Uh, We're talking to some of the greatest travel writers and travel travelers in the world today. And my next guest certainly qualifies for that. He is Joe Yogurst. He's written a trio of books for the National Geographic that are bestsellers. One is called A Hundred Drives, Five Thousand Ideas. Another is A Hundred Parks, Five Thousand Ideas. And the last is Fifty States, Five Thousand Ideas. Welcome, Joe, back to the Travel Show. Thanks very much, Pauline. And uh, hello, Arthur. Hello, Joe. Good to have you on. So, uh, Joe, all of these books have to do with the United States, right? How, and Canada, I believe. How much travel went into creating these three books? How many years did this take? Um, well, I think cumulatively maybe 10 years, but it's really a lifetime of travel across the U.S. and Canada. Um, it's really, they take about uh, a year to, to a year and a half each to research and write. Um, but they, of course, overlap, and I'm often researching more than one book on a single trip that I take. Hmm. So the first one, well, which is probably the last 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. Let's discuss that first. And for anybody tuning in, we're being very, very transparent here. We are uh, taping this in mid-June. And as of this point, people are taking road trips. You'll probably be hearing this a little later in the summer. We hope this will still be helpful. We think it will be. Uh, But in terms of now and this you know everything has changed thanks to covid-19 what are some really really appealing road trips that you would recommend to our listeners that will work now 
Well, it really depends on what their interests are or, or what part of the country they're living in. Um, you know, there's the classic drives like Route 66 and things like that, um, or Highway um, 1 all the way down the Atlantic coast. Um, but those are longer, you know, months long or trips. There's a lot of trips that people in 100 drives that people can do in a, a week or maybe less. And again, it kind of depends on, on um, where they live. Um, one of my favorite drives in New York State, for instance, is w- what I call the Lower Hudson Loop, which is basically from New York City to Albany, up one side of the Hudson and down the other. And it doesn't really matter which way you go. You can take the the left bank first or the right bank first. Um, and it's just a big circle around the Hudson Valley, which is, to me, one of the most gorgeous parts of North America, if not the whole world. Um, and it takes in some, it takes in both American history and it takes in art. It takes in nature. So you have the Catskills and you have West Point and you have Storm King Art Center and you have Hyde Park on the Hudson with the Roosevelt history and everything. So that's a great trip that people can do on the East Coast. That, so it- It's interesting that you you talk about the beauty of that area because that was an area that inspired an entire movement of artists in in early America. Beyond FDR, will people be able to really take in the history right now? I mean, there's so many places that are going to be closed in terms of historic houses and museums. What are the outdoor things that people would really get into on that trip? Well, I think the Catskills, which are a little bit you know, to the west of the actual drive, but, um, you know, Woodstock is right off of the drive and um, Woodstock is kind of in the heart of the Catskills. And that's definitely nature. I mean, you've got the long path, which is the the great hiking path that goes from New York City up to the, the Mohawk Valley that winds through that area. And it's broken up into 40 segments. Each of them you can do as a day, as a day walk. So mm-hmm. as you're doing this drive, there's lots of possibilities for short hikes through the Catskills and other areas. And, um, as far as other nature goes, um, at once, you know, Bear Mountain State Park on the Hudson, climbing to the top of Bear Mountain and looking down on the river and the bridge from up there. Yeah, um, that's a great place to get away. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, there's the um, the Poets Walk in, in Rhinebeck, um, which is a very short walk. But of course, it's one of the places that inspired Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle. Oh. Um so there's um there's a lot of nature up and down despite the the you know in in addition to the american history and the artistic aspects of that area yeah absolutely what about the midwest i think this summer is going to be a summer where people are traveling closer to home and i think a lot of people in the midwest are going to be surprised by what they're going to find in their own backyards right there's a lot in the midwest um and um one of my favorites, although this is a longer one, is, is the Lake Michigan Circle Tour. And this is certainly nothing new. I didn't make this one up. This has been around as long as there's been cars. Um, mm-hmm. And it's basically a 900-mile loop around Lake Michigan through four states. And you can start it from anywhere along that route, uh, from Milwaukee or from Chicago, um, from Green Bay, um, from the Michigan side. And it includes a lot of amazing scenery. I mean, the Door Peninsula in Wisconsin, Mackinac Island, and and uh, uh, I love the Mackinac. Upper Peninsula. Yeah, yeah and and uh, and the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, um, and then what I call the Michigan Riviera, which is the whole east side of Lake Michigan with uh, um, with the dunes out there and Travis City and things. And um, 
So yeah, that's uh, Lake Michigan Circle Tour. Um, well, we another should, we one, should which discuss, is, well, before we go on, I want to discuss that a little yeah. bit more in depth oh. because there's there's much more to. I, it's an area I know pretty well, actually. And for those who have never been to Mackinac Island, it is truly a magical place. Uh, it's a place that never had cars. So you actually have to either drive motorcycles, uh, not motorcycles, bicycles when you're there, or you get around in horse and carriage. And because that, the streets were built for horse and carriages. So they're not really wide enough in certain places for cars. It's, It's a fascinating area. Interestingly, no cars until Vice President Pence came to visit. He insisted on a motorcade. So they had to ship over a lot of cars, much to the dismay of everybody on the island this year. Uh, but just a fascinating place to visit, I think. Yes, it is. And there's great American and Canadian history there, too, because it was fought over by the British and the Americans um, during the revolution and also the war of 1812 and to a large extent it determined that that whole upper um great lakes region ended up in the united states rather than as part of canada Hmm. and it was pivotal in that yeah yeah absolutely so i cut you off what was the next we have about two minutes before we have to take a break so what is the next place you would recommend or drive i should say well um i was going to um mention another one in the midwest which is the american motor history drive um which is getting in your your car and exploring the history of the American automobile. And that's between Detroit and Indianapolis and uh, starts at the Henry Ford Museum and um, which is in Dearborn, Michigan. And it goes to the Olds, the Oldsmobile Museum in Lansing, the Auburn Cord Duesenberg Museum in Auburn, Indiana, and then on to Indianapolis to the Motor Speedway and the museum there. Um, so that's a great way to discover um, the history of the motor car, not just for the United States, but basically where the history of the motor car started for much of planet Earth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Indianapolis is a town that's really on the on the upswing. We actually featured it this year. Uh, we had a list of the best places to go in 2020. Little did we know that people wouldn't be going anywhere <laughs> in 2020. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, we picked Indianapolis because it has a, a spectacular food scene, Really interesting museums uh, there, a surprisingly rich cultural life. And then all of the car stuff, the the Indy 500 obviously takes takes place there. Yeah, a really, really great place to go. And even if the even if there's not a race going on at the time, there's a fantastic museum at Indy Motor Speedway. And there's also a golf course in the infield. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And if and if you have kids. I think it's the best children's museum in the country. A huge museum with a whole section about racing, but also a dinosaur section and just massive, massive children's museum uh, that, that would make a trip. You could spend days there. We have to take our first break. But we will be right back. We have been speaking with Joe Yogurst. He is the author of a bevy of books from National Geographic, including 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas, 100 Parks, 5,000 Ideas, and 50 States, 5,000 Ideas. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have a very distinguished travel writer. He is Joe Yogurst. He's written a trio of books that are all bestsellers, especially this year with, with so many people going out and experiencing the United States. Uh, their titles are 50 States, 5,000 Ideas, 100 Parks, 5,000 Ideas, and 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. Now, on this show, we have a, a, a number of listeners from Hawaii. And people don't usually think of Hawaii as being a road trip destination, but they're wrong, right? I think Hawaii is a great road trip destination. Um, Obviously, if you live there, you probably have your own vehicle, but if not, you're going to fly into the airport and rent a car. And the book has three different Hawaii drives, uh, one each on Oahu, Maui, and then the island of Hawaii, the big island. Um, and my, my favorite one, which is one of the ones that the last drives I actually did for this book, and I had done it years ago, 20 years ago, so it was a repeat for me, was the big island belt road. So you fly into Kona Airport, rent a car, Spend a couple of days on the Kona coast snorkeling with um, with the fish and the various things there, and then taking off on on sort of a counterclockwise journey around the Big Island that includes Volcanoes National Park and Hilo and the Waimea Highlands and all the great food that's there, horseback riding, hiking, um, sailing, kayaking, and that's a uh, so I consider it about a week long journey, but you could conceivably do it in a long weekend if you're flying from either the mainland once that's possible again or, or if you live in Honolulu and you feel like a getaway you can fly down and do it easily in three days so that's the Big Island Belt Road. Yeah I think people when they go to the Big Island they're surprised by what it looks like because it's the youngest island so it doesn't have as many white sand beaches as the other islands because it's all new rock that's been recently formed by volcanic uh, eruptions. Uh, but That's then right. you, you mm -hmm. go up to the highlands. Does this drive go up in, in the places where you see the Hawaiian cowboys? Yes, it does, around the north side of the Big Island, um, because the coast road doesn't continue very far north of Hilo. It actually cuts inland and goes across the highlands where the, where the Hawaiian ranching industry was and still is. Um, so you get the the whole Highland experience of the uh, the chilly mornings and the guys on horseback riding down the middle of the road and things like that that you don't nor normally expect of of Hawaii. Right. Did you have to change the driving instructions at all because of recent eruptions? Because I know that they impacted some of the roads. Um, those were actually impacted before I did the trip last ah. year. So everything was open on the main road when I got there. And I also found that the roads in the, the main roads in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park were also open at that time. Not all of the hiking trails were, but all of the auto routes were through the park. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Now, uh, for anybody tuning in late, we're speaking with Joe Yogurst. He is the author of 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas, which we've been discussing for Nat Geo. He also has a book called 100 Parks. 5,000 ideas. Now, when you say parks, are those all national parks? Are they state parks? What, what kind of parks does that book cover? Well, National Geographic had, has always done great national parks books. And this time we decided to do something different. We had to have national parks in the book because that's what the, you know, the main subject. But after that, we decided to include what we thought were really cool state parks, national forests, Big city parks like Central Park in New York um, oh. 
and Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, things like that. Um, Mont Royal in Montreal is one of the city parks. And also some national wildlife refuges, which are very visitor friendly, great visitor experiences at refuges that are not just there for hunting or to protect the animals, but they also increasingly, they um, also cater to just kind of ordinary travelers. Beyond the fact that different organizations run these parks, how is the experience different, say, in a national refuge or a monument or a state park and a national park? Or is, is, it, is it park by park? It's pretty much park by park, but you'll find going around the country, some of the state parks that we chose really could easily be national parks, like Adirondack Park in upstate New York, which was one of the first state state reserves of any kind in the entire country, but it's also one of the largest and easily deserves being national park status, except for the fact that a lot of land is still privately privately owned, of course. Um, Another one, which is also in New York, which is a state park is Niagara Falls. And the reason, the reason it's a state park instead of a national park or national monument is the fact that the state of New York was there for conservation before the federal government was. Um, And, um, and you find that also with the, the three big Redwood Park state parks in Northern California, long before there was a Redwood National Park, almost a hundred years before the state of California decided to preserve the North Coast Redwoods. And they bought three tracts of land up there, which were in the 1960s combined into the National Park, which is now called the Redwoods National and State Parks. Right. So you find that the state park, the states often got there first in some cases. And so you have these amazing state parks that are really just as good as national parks in a lot of ways. Um, and across the nation, there's there's 8,000 state parks. And they're wow. often... They're often just down the road from you. They're often the easiest parks to visit. In fact, tomorrow I'm going to visit a local state park in California and camp there for the weekend, Mount Palomar State Park outside of San Diego in Los Angeles. So my first trip of the summer, my first camping trip is to a state park. And, That's great. Um, so you can camp. You will find those kinds of facilities. Will there also be ranger tours and, and things of that sort in a state well, park? Parks are opening up at at a different rate. Um, California decided to open up 30 of its state parks last Saturday and start taking reservations for the first time since before the lockdown. So I got on immediately to the reservation site and made made reservations for this weekend nearby. And I also managed to snag some really rare reservations for Big Sur camping over Labor Day weekend, which are normally impossible to get. I would think um, so. Yeah. So all of a sudden, from last Saturday, thirty state parks opened up, but they normally have limited facilities, and you find that with parks across the nation, a lot of national parks have, are starting to open again, open up again. But there's no kind of common rule. They've left it. The National Park Service has left it up to the individual parks to decide how they're going to reopen. Interesting. So you have parks like Yosemite, which have decided that they're only going to allow in. of the number of people that they have on average every day. Wow. You know what? I have to I have to cut you off, but we will we will finish this thought as soon as we take these messages.
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Joe Yogurst, who is the author of a trio of really terrific books for the National Geographic. Uh, we're talking about the one called 100 Parks, 5,000 Ideas. And we've been talking about the different ways that the parks have been opening up. So you said that Yosemite recently opened. I, I read that um, actually, we covered this on Fromers.com. Grand Canyon opened over Memorial Day, got so alarmed by the massive crowds of tourists who came that they shut down again, and now they're reopened again. So it's yes. it's, it's a fine line with, with trying to welcome visitors, but making sure that social distancing is still happening, even in nature areas. Oh, it, oh yeah, for sure. Um and I just read yesterday that Zion National Park in southern Utah is reopening, um, but they have very, very strict rules about what they're doing. Um, once the parking slots in Zion Canyon fill up, they're closing the park for the rest of the day. Wow. So basically, it's first come, first serve. You have to get there when it opens. When the rangers determine that the parking places are all shut up, the gates close, and that's it for the rest of the day. Wow. So that's how they're going to handle the crowds. Do you um, think that then going to a state park might be a better bet because it might not be as famous? Or really, does it all depend on what is closest to a major metropolitan area? I, I think both. Um some national parks remained open all the way through, like Great Smoky Mountains, because there's a U.S. highway that runs between right. Tennessee and North Carolina. So you could drive through the Smoky Mountains National Park all the way through the lockdown. It was never shut. And there are some parks that have highways through them that are like that. Um, right. And um, I, I think people should take advantage of the, the close-by state parks, because those are the ones that are probably most likely to open up. And you can kind of experiment like I'm doing this weekend with a bunch of new camping equipment and I have a brand new tent that I've never put up before. And if it happens that I can't get it up, it's only 45 minutes to drive back home to get my old tent. <laughs> wow. Uh, you won't just drive back home and sleep in your own bed? <laughs> no, but I actually did that once when I had to review a hotel and I couldn't sleep in the hotel oh and it was five minutes away from my house and I came home and slept. <laughs> and then early the next morning, went back to the hotel. <laughs> Did you give that hotel a bad review? I didn't give it a great review. Let's put it uh, that way. Well, we are speaking <laughs> with Joe Yogurst, who is a, a major travel writer. He's written three terrific books for National Geographic. One is called A Hundred Drives, 5,000 Ideas. Another is A Hundred Parks, 5,000 Ideas. And one is 50 States, 5,000 Ideas. Now, back to the parks for a second. Is there a park that you feel doesn't get nearly the visitation that it deserves and thus might be a really great park to go to this summer in terms of social distancing, a place that has great appeal, but, but nobody knows about it. Um, there's a couple of places. Again, it depends on where you live and how far you want to drive. Um, sure. I have a, a couple of favorites, um, largely because not a lot of people go there. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt National Park and, in Western North Dakota, I think it's a great small national park because it combines a lot of natural history. It's a great place to see typical Great Plains wildlife in a natural setting. It's kind of badlands terrain, so it's very interesting. It's, it's grasslands and some forest, and there's an old Wild West town that's right outside the park entrance, 
And it has the whole Teddy Roosevelt history because that's where he went to be a rancher huh. after his after his mother and his wife passed away on the same day. Wow. Um, and that's where he kind of went into mourning. And that that whole experience is, you know, his original cabin they preserved at the visitor center. You can see where he actually lived hmm. after his upbringing, his, his, his very wealthy Gilded Age upbringing in New York City. He went and stayed in this one room log cabin out in the middle of nowhere. And that's wow. where he recuperated. Um, so I think that's a, a, a great one. Um, another place that I really like, because you can hit five national parks in one shot, is southern Utah, where you've got famous parks like Zion and Bryce Canyon, and then maybe not so famous parks like Canyonlands and Arches and Capitol Reef. And you can pretty much hit all five of those in a week-long trip. Um, and it's one of the few places where you can actually do that. Um, yeah. Another place that, that's a lot more famous, but it's far away and doesn't get nearly the visitation because it's far away is Glacier National Park in Montana, mm. which I think is one of the most beautiful spots on the entire planet. Probably um, doesn't get visitation because it has a fairly short season because it's so it has far a very away. short se- Yeah, it has a very short season. Um, and to get there, you have to fly into airports that are probably a good four or five hours away, unless you've got your own private plane and, um, and then rent a car and drive, but the drive across Montana is gorgeous. Um, And um, it's one of the few places left in the continental United States where there's still glaciers. um, Mm. And you can see grizzly bears and and, and black bears in the same day and Rocky mountain goats and things like that. The kind of wildlife you expect to see in Alaska, you can see in Glacier National Park. Are the glaciers receding? Are they also marking, as I, I was in Alaska a couple of years back, and one of the most moving, scary things was seeing marks for where the glaciers were five years ago, 10 years ago, and see how quickly they're receding. Is that happening in Glacier, too? They are receding, but the, the, the glaciers in Glacier are, are much smaller than the ones in Alaska. Hmm. So it's not as dramatic to see how much they've they've actually crept back from where they were before, unless you kind of compare it to photographs. Um, and they were scattered around the park, high in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, so there were quite a few. There were scores of glaciers in Glacier National Park. And they are slowly receding, and they feel like in the next 20 years, probably most of them will disappear. Oh, boy. So my advice for Glacier is get Go there back. now. Well, yeah. yeah. On, that, well, on that note, we have to take another quick break. For anybody tuning in late, we're speaking with Joe Yogurst, who's written a trio of terrific books for National Geographic. We've been discussing 100 Parks, 5,000 Ideas. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, and my dad is on the line, too, as is Joe Yogurst. If you're a fan of those gorgeous, big National Geographic travel books, you probably know Joe's name. He's written three of their bestsellers. One is called 50 States, 5,000 Ideas. Another is 100 Parks, 5,000 Ideas. And the last is 100 Drives, 5,000 Ideas. Let's talk about the first in the series, 50 States, 5,000 Ideas. What was the, how does this, how does this book work? How, How does it inspire travelers? 
Well, it's, it's more of an ideas book. Um, I think there's some people who buy it and expect it to be a detailed guidebook, but that was never what it was intended to be. It's, it's really something to sit with at home and to read about what you can do in different states and Canadian provinces and decide, it, decide that's where I want to go next and this is what I want to do. It's not really for a person who lives in that state who's done everything already, because it's not probably not going to tell you anything you don't already know unless you just move to that state. So it's more if you're the person who lives in Maine and you decide that you want to go to Arizona, this is what I want to do. Or if you're from Washington State and you decide that your next vacation should be in Florida, you read the Florida chapter and think, that's what I want to do when I'm in Florida. Ah. So that's that was the whole idea behind it was um, to give people a broad overview of each state and province with some with with ideas about what to do when you go there. Some of them very obvious ideas and always throwing in a few a few more obscure, not so obvious nuggets. Well, let's talk about Florida, because I think a lot of people think they know what to do when they go to Florida. A lot of people go there for the theme parks or they go to Miami Beach or they head to the Keys. What are some of the less known but still very compelling attractions that one should go to in Florida? Well, there's the Lost Coast, as they call it, which is um, up in the Florida panhandle. And it's... um. It's the coastline along the Gulf between Tallahassee and Panama City, um, which I find fascinating. And I discovered it almost by accident a couple of years ago. I had an assignment to do in Tallahassee, uh, a writing assignment for a month there. And on my days off, I would drive down to the Gulf and I started basically finding that uh, it was in the fall. So there were a lot of seafood festivals going on in Apalachicola and St. Mark's and places like that. Um, great wildlife, manatees that migrate up into the, into the bayous, the creeks during that time of year. Um, the monarch butterfly migration was going through at that time. Wow. And, um, of course, you can see gators because that is gator country. Um, uh-huh. And uh, amazing bird life. Um, so you combine it with um, the music, the outdoor music that you get at these festivals, the great seafood, um, the wildlife, the white sand, talcum powder, fine beaches, mm. and really an incredible lack of people. I mean, I remember walking on a white sand beach on the St. Joe's Peninsula down there, and I was the only person on that wonderful, beautiful beach on a weekend. Is that because it's farther north than some of Florida's more famous spots and therefore gets colder in winter? Or why why so undiscovered if it was such a beautiful beach? Um, It's pretty busy in the summer um, Ah. because people come down from Georgia, Alabama, places like that, Tennessee. Um, but I found that off season it was refreshingly empty, um, and um, compared to you know South Beach or Key West or places like that, where I've also been off season and they're definitely not empty, um, at least not before COVID. And, sure. Um, and yeah. um, it's also far away from any large population center, so mm. you have to drive quite a ways from Jacksonville or Atlanta or New right. Orleans or, to to get there. Sure. And, sure. Um, so well, I think that that's. Yeah, that helps a lot. Um, so you get people at the seafood festivals, but they're mostly local people who come from the cities down there. Yeah. Pensacola and, and Panama City and places like that, Tallahassee. But, uh, you know, I'm the type of person is, I mean, I, cr- cr- you know, it's, crowds are great in some instances, or at least they used to be. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, if you're going to go to a rock festival, you hope there's more than five people there. But, <laughs> <laughs> right. But if you're going to a beach, I, I think there's nothing better than an empty, nice, sunny you know, subtropical beach. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what you get on. That's what you get on the Forgotten Coast. And um, and I think that there's even places in um, in South Florida that are not as well used. Um, Biscayne National Park, which is on Biscayne Bay, south of Miami, hmm. is very underutilized for that region. I just think because not a lot of people know about it. And and if you're going to the Keys, Key West is just crazy all the time. Right. But if you go to Key Largo, it's still laid back. And mm-hmm. I mean, you have to drive, you have to drive through it on Highway 1. But if you stop and stay in Key Largo at little resorts like the Kona Kai and, and you go to John Pennycamp State Park for snorkeling or scuba diving, it's like the Keys from 50 years ago. Ah, oh, that sounds um, idyllic. So, so even in what you consider the crowded parts of Florida, there are these little gems and little uncrowded places that you can go to if you, if you research it or if you read, read my books. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, we have to take another break. For anybody tuning in late, we are speaking with Joe Yogurst, who has written a trio of terrific books for the National Geographic. In fact, they're often uh, the best sellers in their uh, in their verticals. So do look on uh, wherever books are sold for those. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer. Uh, on the phone with us today is Joe Yogurst, who has written a trio of terrific books for the National Geographic. They include, uh, I, I don't have it in front of me, Joe. Can you give the, can you give the three? My screen has gone down. <laughs> <laughs> 50 states, 5,000 ideas. 100 parks, 5,000 ideas, and 100 drives, 5,000 ideas. Right. Or as I like to call it, 100 road trips. But, uh, so as a travel writer, I mean, this is your bread and butter, obviously. Uh, yes. But beyond that, I've been asking all of our experts at the end of each hour why they think travel is important. If they do, if you don't, you can make that argument too. But, but why, when all of this is over, why should people get out again and see the world again? Because I really do believe it changes your life and your attitudes. Um, it changes how you think about yourself because of the right way that you react in travel situations. And I think it changes the way in, in a positive sense of how you think about other people and other civilizations, other societies, other cultures, um, certainly other food groups. Um, I wouldn't have the taste buds I have today for <laughs> food from all around the world if I hadn't traveled to those places and tasted those foods in their natural setting. And um, you lived uh, abroad for many years. That's how you got into this, right? I lived for 13 years outside of the U.S., um, starting in South Africa and then England and Hong Kong and Singapore before coming back to the States. Hmm. And so you you learned as an insider as well as as an outsider about different ways of, of approaching life, right? Yes. Um, and it also taught me what I could do, first of all, physically. I mean, I was, I was a kid who was one of these kids who was always sick. I had asthma and various other ailments. And traveling made me realize what I could do physically. So as a teenager, I went and I backpacked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and out 
by, mm-hmm. by myself um, in the middle of July when it was 120 at the bottom. So wow. once I did that, I figured, well, you know, maybe my asthma is not going to hold me back. And within a couple of years after that, I was climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, making it up to 19,000 feet, um, my despite my, my lungs. Um, and, um, and also dealing with, you know, the, the year that I spent in Africa, having to deal with customs officials, border guards, military mm. people, um, backpacking through the bush, hitchhiking through South Africa. Wow. Things that I would probably never do now, but when you're <laughs> in your 20s, you right. think you're indestructible. But it taught me how to deal with difficult situations and yeah. not freak out about it. That's yeah. what travel did. Um, and also the people that you meet along the way. Yeah, um, that's the best of it, I think. And I can, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you right now if I had not made the decision to quit my job in California and buy a one-way ticket to Johannesburg. Wow to try to become a freelance journalist. Yeah, and it changed your life. We have to say goodbye, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, Joe, it's been a delight speaking with you. We've been speaking with Joe Yogurst, who has written terrific books for the National Geographic. And to anybody who is traveling, may we wish you a hearty bon voyage. <laughs> 